All right, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really enjoying this study in 1 John. Let's read verses 18 through 22. And John repeats his oft-used phrase of little children or dear children. So we repeatedly see his, his pastoral heart, his father's heart. He truly views the ones to whom he is writing, which really would be all believers who have the privilege of being able to read this letter and study this letter. That's what it was originally, a letter, an epistle. Little children. He's writing to them as a spiritual father. It is the last hour. And that's an interesting statement considering it was made 2,000 years ago, but we will talk about that. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, notice the Antichrist, big A, that's a very specific individual, but he says even now many little A Antichrists have come. And this is the first century. By which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We are so thankful for every word, for every precious morsel of spiritual food that you've made available to us. And Lord, we ask now that you'd bless this time of study in your word. Lord, help us to take in every bite, to digest it, ingest it, have it become a part of of who we are, what we are, how we think, how we live. Bless this time in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Little children, we've covered that ad infinitum. So he says, little children, it's the last hour. You might be thinking, well, man, I don't know about John's credibility here. I mean, the last hour, and here we are 2,000 years later. But I want you to notice something, and this is just one example, but as you study the New Testament, you will find that John, as well as the rest of the apostles and all of the first century believers who sat under their teaching, firmly believed that Jesus would return or could return at any moment. Do you get that? Now, what does that tell us? You see, because, again, one of the big controversies in the church and has been perhaps forever I haven't been around forever, so I can't say for sure, but I know in in my lifetime at least, one of the big controversies in the church has been, is Jesus going to catch his church up to meet him in the air before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation, and then there are some who don't believe in any rapture at all. But the fact that John and all of the first century believers were expecting him at any moment, what does that tell you? And it wasn't because they were stupid or ignorant or uninformed. These are the guys that wrote the New Testament. They believed that it could happen at any moment. He says it is the last hour. Over in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his first public evangelistic message on the day of Pentecost, and 
120 people speaking in tongues. And they were accused of being intoxicated. Even though the people understood them in their own languages. People were gathered there from all over the Middle East. Jews of the diaspora, which means they had been scattered throughout that part of the world. And so they spoke many different languages. And they each heard these men praising God, these men and women, heard them praising God in their own native tongues. And yet they accused them of being intoxicated. Well, Peter says in verse 15, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Give me a break, guys. We do partake of the fruit of the vine, but not at 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass when? In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. The reason for that is old men sleep a lot more than young men. A vision is something you have when you're awake. A prophetic dream is something that you have when you're asleep. So God understood this whole phenomenon and he gives the visions to the young men and the dreams to the old men. But my point is Peter also believed that as a result of the coming of Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and now on this day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all believers, he's quoting from Joel and saying, hey, it shall come to pass in the last days. Peter believed he was living in the last days. Now, if we believe that these men we're speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we cannot question their belief that they were living in the last days. So how does that, how does that equate with a 2,000 year period? We'll talk about it in just a moment. First Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, there's, there's some question and some doubt about the, author, the authorship of Hebrews. I believe it was Paul. Some do, some don't. But whoever wrote Hebrews also believed that they were living in the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Previously, he spoke through the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come, when? In the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Aha. Now we begin to look at this 2,000 year issue. You guys are listening to the teachings of men like John and Peter and Paul who said 2,000 years ago they were in the, living in the last days, the last hour, and here we are 2,000 years later you guys are full of it. You're nuts. Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Let's go down to 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Peter explains it to us right here. Beloved, do not forget one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. You see, God exists 
above and beyond and outside the realm of space and time. With God, everything is now, right now. He's the great I am. He's not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am. He created time, you see. That's why when we finally enter our final dwelling place in the new Jerusalem, at the end of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, time will be no more. God's already there. He's already in that realm. He's already in that dimension where there is no time. You and I haven't gotten there yet. And so Peter says, hey, do not forget this one thing, guys. When you start harping on 2,000 years, lest you become a mocker or a scoffer, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Which, looking at that, it's been a little over 2,000 years since the events that we read about in the Gospels, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, and his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He rose from the dead on the third day, correct? So if we equate a thousand years with a day, as Peter is doing here, we are just now entered into the realm of the third day with this new millennium, which is less than 20 years old. So I am still clinging tightly, strongly to the belief that he's coming at any moment. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness. Here's why. Even though, you see, John wasn't wrong. Peter wasn't wrong. Paul wasn't wrong. The first century believers weren't wrong. That possibility, that potentiality for the imminent, immediate return of Christ has been there from day one. The only reason from the human perspective that it's been delayed, here's the reason. He is long-suffering towards us, patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why it's been 2,000 years. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. God gave the people of Noah's day time to repent, did he not? 120 years in that case. We don't know how long he gave the people of Sodom, but we do know that there came a point in time, both with Noah and with Lot, where God, and God is the only one who has the right or the ability to make this choice, to make this decision. When is enough enough? We know that he errs on the side of patience. He errs on the side of grace. He's not willing that any should perish. However, he can't wait around forever for everybody to get saved. And so at some point, just as in, with Noah, as with Lot, as with various people groups, various nations, even individuals, if you look at 1 John chapter 5, it talks about a sin that leads to death. God is the author of life. He's the one who gives life and Technically, he should be the only one who takes it, you see. He has the final word. And so it's not for us to try to figure out or to decide or to determine 
When is enough enough? Now, you and I would probably say, right now. Right? Enough is enough. Let's get out of here. Right? We would love to be with Jesus this very moment, and there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. We should be longing to be with Jesus right now. In fact, what the scriptures say is not good is when you don't long to be with him, when you're in love with this world, as we talked about in our last teaching, week before last, to the point that we hope he doesn't come soon. And there are actually some so-called believers who think that way. That's not pleasing to God at all. It is pleasing to him that we should be desiring to be with him this very moment. Paul said, I would prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. However, I have a calling. Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm called to preach the gospel and win the lost, and I'm not going anywhere till God's done with me. But if I had my way, I'd be with him right now. Nothing wrong with that. But we must realize, if Jesus would have come back in the first century, you and I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't even exist. And one of the things that I thank God for is allowing me to be born into this world. If not, I would have never had the opportunity to know him and ultimately to live with him forever. I like existing. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe some people don't because they're so miserable. Their lives are so horrible. They need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. And it breaks my heart to think that some people would say, I wish I'd never been born. That's one thing I've never said. I guess I've been pretty blessed. I don't know. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family by any means. My parents both died by the time I was 17. And yet, I still am very thankful that I was born. I've had asthma and allergies since I was two years old. I had respiratory issues my whole life. And yet, what does God do? He calls me to be a preacher and a singer. Does God have a sense of humor or what? I'm pretty sure, technically speaking, based upon my most recent breathing tests, was actually quite a long time ago. I don't bother to do that very often. I shouldn't even be breathing. That's how bad my lung function is. But guess what? I get my lung function from a higher power. And by my booming voice, you'd never know that I have any breathing issues, would you? My biggest problem is tamping it down. I go out in public and everybody hears every word I say. So we have to be careful, you know, when we get into the realm of medical diagnosis and prognosis and all that. I mean, you know, thank God for doctors. Thank God for medicine. You know, I wouldn't probably be here right now myself without it. However... We have to keep in mind that God is bigger and greater than all that. And I've told you many times, you're not going anywhere until God's done with you. And when he is done with you, you're not staying. So just go with the flow. That was quite a nice little sidetrack. I trust spirit-led, though. So, again, John is not wacky. He's not crazy. He's not... Missing the mark. It is the last hour. Now, an hour, depending upon what you're doing at the time, can go by really fast or it can seem really long, can it not? You ever got yourself in that clock-watching mode? It's like you look at your watch every five minutes. Man, when, you know, when is this food going to be ready? Or, 
You know, when is my wife going to be ready? Or... Now, that wasn't personal. I say those things in a generic way, and then you guys take it personally. <laughs> it's kind of like when, you know, Henny Youngman would say, now, take my wife. Please, take my wife. You know, <laughs> he wasn't literally ragging on his wife. It's just a joke, okay? So, please don't take everything I say to mean that I am referring to my wife. All right. My point is this. What seems like a long time to one person can seem very short to another. And again, when you're dealing with the God of creation who operates outside the realm of space and time, it's not even an issue. And by the way, John was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when John says, little children, it's the last hour, who told him that? God. If God says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? The last hour, folks, apparently, from what we find in the New Testament scriptures, the last hour is that entire period between the first and second coming of Christ. Which, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, it's really a multifaceted event. The Bible refers to it as the day of the Lord, it includes the, the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the second coming where we come back with him and he establishes his throne upon the earth to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years. That's all part of the second coming. It's important to understand that. It's not just a one-time, one-day event. It's a series of events. Now, this is where we need to make a point that it's so important for believers to continue on in the Word of God, to continue on in fellowship, to be focused on spiritual things. Because otherwise, we'll become one of those mockers or scoffers. This is important. Because if we don't keep reminding ourselves of these things, we will be caught up in that and I've seen it happen with believers. It's not just non-believers who will mock or scoff at the return of Christ, the rapture of the church and all these things. Because they lose sight of the fact that God has a whole different perspective on these things than what we have. One day is a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. Right? All right, let's move on from that. And he said, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Okay, so where or from whom did these dear children, these little children, hear that the Antichrist is coming? He heard, they heard it from John and the other apostles. Now, 1 John, 2 John, which we'll get into after we finish 1 John, are the only books of the Bible where this specific word is used, Antichrist. But in Matthew 24, 24, where Jesus warns, that one of the signs that we would be in the last days, would there, there would be many false Christs. The word is pseudo-Christoi. Pseudo, you know, false. Pseudo-Christoi, false Christs. And of course, we find as we study the New Testament that there are a, a number of other names for the man that John identifies here with a big A, Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, for example, Paul writes, let no one deceive you by any means. 
Why would he write that unless we were in danger of being deceived? And many have been. For that day, big D, notice that it's a specific day, the day of the Lord. But again, the day of the Lord is not one day. It's a series of events. The day of the Lord will not come until the falling away comes first. There's a, uh, one of the newer songs by uh, Jesus Culture. I think Nikki does it. I was actually listening to it, thinking about doing it as well. I like it. But I noticed, and there's a problem with a lot of the new worship. It's not all very theologically sound. And that's one of the subtle things the enemy is doing to infiltrate the church. There's a, there's a section where it says there's, a, there's an army rising up. And that smacks of what we call dominion theology. Dominion theology teaches that the body of Christ is going to become so powerful, so dynamic, so strong, that we're just going to bring the whole world to Christ. And then he's going to return. That's dominion the And that's laced through a lot of these popular movements that we see today. Hillsong, Pat Robertson, who's a great guy, but he's a dominion theologist. Many of the charismatic TV figures that you see are dominion theologists. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that an army is going to rise up, some massive Christian army in the last days, and conquer the world for Jesus. I only know of one person who can conquer this world, and that's Jesus. And it's not going to be conquered until he comes back. Do you get it? In the meantime, he's going to allow the Antichrist to temporarily conquer the world. It's going to be, Jesus said, it'll be worse than any other time in the history of the human race. And folks, the enemy is subtly sowing seeds of false doctrine in the church through these new young worship leaders and songwriters who don't have good theology. That's, I, you know, I let Nikki do the new stuff. I just do the old stuff. And I'm not saying she's right and I'm wrong. In fact, I hope, you know, she'll take heed and she'll watch out too. But so much of the new popular worship music is not Biblical. It's all touchy-feely stuff. Are you following me? Not all of it. Pardon me for making a generalization. So if and when I do that song, I'm probably going to change that chorus. The Son of God is rising up. There's not an army rising up. Because I don't really see any massive army of believers that's even properly equipped to rise up. Because they don't know the truth of God's word anymore. Okay, so let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. By the way, I'm not criticizing Nikki for having done that song. I liked the song. It just dawned on me when I started listening to it, working on it to do it myself. I said, wait a minute, this chorus is not theologically sound. And maybe I haven't even been as diligent as I should have been, so I'm holding myself accountable in front of you guys to be careful with that stuff. Because, you know, in fact, one of the best ways to, to inculcate or infuse the scriptures into your heart and mind is to sing them. That's why David wrote the Psalms. And when you sing it over and over again, it becomes a part of you. And if you're singing something that's not biblically correct, it's going to get implanted in your heart and mind and mess with your, your doctrine and your theology. Do you see what I'm saying? The falling away comes first. That's what the Bible predicts in the last days. 
Not a great revival. Now, there's pockets of revival in different parts of the world, and that's not uncommon. Down through human history, revival tends to spring up where there's persecution or tremendous travail. When our nation has been at war, whether it was the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, those types of things tend to create revivals. No surprise, right? There's an old expression, there's no atheists in foxholes. And so, in times of great trial and tribulation, those tend to create revival. We had a mini revival after 9-1-1, but it petered out pretty quick. And there will be pockets of revival throughout the world, but there's not going to be any global, massive turning to Christ until he returns. The Bible predicts a great falling away. And by the way, falling away means you used to be there, but now you're not. Somebody who's never known the Lord hasn't fallen away. They've never been there, right? So we're talking about people within the church falling away. And that doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to become atheists or agnostics or Satanists. It simply means they've fallen away from the truth. So here we go. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Two more names for the Antichrist. The man of sin and the son of perdition. Who else is known, by the way, as the son of perdition? John 17, 12, Judas Jesus says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. He's praying to his Father. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Does that mean that the Antichrist is going to be Judas reincarnated? No. Why did Jesus refer to Judas as the son of perdition? Because Satan entered him, the scriptures tell us, before he betrayed Christ, no matter how rotten you are, it's not really easy to betray the Son of God without some satanic help. Satan entered Judas. Satan will also enter the Antichrist. That's why they're both referred to in the Scriptures as the son of perdition. Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he became the son of perdition because he was personally inhabited, not by a demon, not just any old garden variety demon, by Satan himself. And that will happen with the Antichrist as well. Revelation 13, 1 through 4. I stood on the sand of the sea. That's the, the sea of humanity. This is John the Revelator. I saw a beast rising up. This is another name for the Antichrist. A beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and so forth. It goes down to the middle of verse 2. The dragon gave him his power. The dragon is Satan. The serpent, the dragon, Lucifer, so he receives his power directly from Satan, his throne and great authority. Then it speaks of a mortal wound. So there will be a fake resurrection. That's another reason why he's the Antichrist. One of the reasons people will be drawn to him to worship him is he will appear to have been resurrected from the dead. How that will be accomplished, I don't know. It says his deadly wound was healed, so... And by the way, there are those people called psychic healers. Have you ever heard of one of those? How many of you remember Johanna Michelson when she came? She wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. Uh, she used to live in Mexico, and she studied under one of these psychic healers. And these people do these 
supernatural surgeries, they'll thrust their hand into somebody's body and pull out a lump of cancer, these types of things. These are demonic, satanic healings. Satan has counterfeits for all the miracles of God. But there's a price to pay when you dabble with the beautiful side of evil. So there will be some kind of a satanic, demonic resurrection. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast. So they'll worship Satan, they'll worship the beast, the Antichrist, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 1 Thessalonians 2.3 in the NIV. He's called the man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction. These are the equivalents of the man of sin and the son of perdition. The New American Standard Bible, man of lawlessness and son of destruction. The New Revised Standard, the lawless one and the one destined for destruction. So that's these various names that we see attached to the one that John identifies as the Antichrist. John's readers were already aware that God was warning his people through the apostles that a specific individual was coming and would appear in human history in an attempt to usurp God's glory and to preempt Christ's triumphant return to earth as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They'd already been taught, warned, as you have heard, but he's reminding them, and that's a big theme we've talked about in these studies in First and Second Peter, now moving into First John, that God is all about reminding us because we so easily forget. We get distracted, sidetracked, and God wants us to be reminded. Second Thessalonians 2.4, it says that this man, this man of sin, this son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. And again, who else did that? Satan, the five I wills of Satan. I will be like the most high. I will rise up above the stars of the heavens. The five I wills of Satan that he wanted to usurp God's authority and God's throne. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. This is the end game. It's been, it's been the end game from the beginning of time, folks. I wish I could find it. I did a teaching many years ago about the fact that the entire struggle of the human race from beginning to end, is all about who will be worshipped. That's what it's about. Will it be God or will it be Satan? That's everything, every war, every, everything you can think about, every struggle of humanity from the beginning of time has ultimately been about who will be worshipped. Satan hasn't given up yet. He still wants to be worshipped. He still thinks he can pull it off. And the closest that he will ever get it's when he enthrones the Antichrist as the leader of this entire world. Do you see the globalism creeping in more and more every day? Do you see the move more and more towards a one world government? Absolutely. Opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, the, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. I mean, they're chomping at the bit. Word, is, word on the street is they have the entire temple prefabricated and ready to go up. I've been to the Temple Institute. I've seen all the implements. They're all ready to go. Everything that you read about in the Old Testament, all the furnishings of the temple have already been made. The, the Levites are in training. I'm telling you, everything 
that temple could be go up and running in no time. But as some have pointed out, we shouldn't get too excited about that because it's not the temple of Jesus Christ. As you study the book of Ezekiel, Jesus is going to build his own temple when he gets here. This temple will be the temple of the Antichrist. The Jews think it's going to be God's temple, but it's really going to be the temple of the Antichrist. He's, so he sits in the, as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that, my friends, is the uh, um, abomination in the temple there. But John says, okay, now even now many Antichrists, small a, have come. So there is one coming, ultimately, the big daddy of all Antichrists. But this is Antichristos, one who opposes Christ. And so already in John's day, there were many who opposed Christ, obviously, and his people. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, certainly. The Romans, the Greeks. Emperor Nero, who would um, cover Christians with... Um, you know, oil, tar, and so forth, uh, nail them on a cross and set them on fire and use them as human torches. Emperor Decius, Emperor Diocletian, Antichrist, forerunners of the Antichrist, and there have been many others. Even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. And so again, the last hour started 2,000 years ago, but John is teaching that one of the key signs that the return of Christ is near is that there will be an ever-growing opposition, antichristos, to him and to his agenda. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not moving today, working today, saving souls. Certainly he is. But I would propose to you, this is a term, I don't know if anybody else has used this, but I'm, I haven't heard it anywhere, but I'm going to say that the golden age of Christianity has come and gone. Christianity transformed the known world for the good. It transformed all of Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, North American continent, everywhere that Christianity was spread, everywhere the gospel was preached, lives got better. Do you know that? Culturally, societies, every way, economic. A friend of mine used to use a term that he learned in seminary called redemption and lift and that is that whenever someone gets saved I mean if they're truly born again if they've been converted regenerated born again by the Spirit of God their life gets better it's just a fact drug addicts get delivered alcoholics get delivered people begin to live more productive fruitful lives in every way their lives get better when they get saved and I would say that that golden era or age of Christianity, when so much of the world was transformed, that's drifting away now. I mean, you see it in our own nation. The very thing that made us great was God. But now God is being pushed aside, at least the true God. Many false gods are being embraced in our, in our nation today and other parts of the world. But the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that made this nation great. And see, now though, don't you dare wear anything that says make America great again. You might get beat up. Seriously, you might get killed. 
But if we really wanted to make America great again, we would have to turn back to God. And see, most people don't want to do that. That's why they get so ticked off. And they'll tell you America was never great. Really? Then how come everybody else in the world wants to be us? The only problem now is the us that they want to be is not a good us. Because it's an us that has turned from God. Now, again, I said I don't believe in a great end times revival. I don't see it in the scriptures. I don't see it as I look around me. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. I'm not saying give up on evangelism. I'm not saying give up on preaching the gospel. But I think we need to take God's word seriously and prepare ourselves for what lies ahead. And this will teach us how we should pray. We should pray for revival. We need it. Our world is in trouble. Our nation is in trouble. By which we know that this is the last hour. Revelation 2.27 he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my Father. And so that time is coming when Christ will rule the earth with a rod of iron. That's what this last hour is leading up to. And again, it won't be a problem unless your desire is to rebel against God. But all of us who are frustrated with the lack of justice we see in this world the millennial kingdom of Christ will be nothing but justice. Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You see how the enemy weaves a little grain of truth into a whole lot of deception. You know, it's like the environment. Yes, is the environment have problems yes and is it because of man well you could say yes because the environment is cursed because of our sin right. you see everything's under the curse we are the animals the plants the animal vegetable mineral it's all under the curse but getting rid of all the cow flatulence is not going to fix it okay getting rid of all the cars and the planes and it's not going to fix it. The only one who can fix it is the one who made it. And by I don't know how many years now we've been ready to expire in 10 years. It's got to be at least 30 or 40 years. And I think I told you last time I was up here a couple weeks ago, look around. Do you see mass numbers of people dropping dead because of climate change? I don't. Even in the harshest climates on this globe, you don't see that. But Jesus is the answer. We know that. And the other thing that I was referring to in terms of the enemy sowing a little seed of truth. There's this big push for globalism, one world government. Governments, you know, all these separate nations, that's the problem. If we just had one, we are the world. You know, no boundaries, no borders, no walls. Unless you're wealthy, like Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama, and you, you want a wall around your house, that's okay. Okay, here we go with that political stuff again. Look out. Okay, in light of that, let me point out something. We need to celebrate that HB 51 was defeated. Yeah. 
And if I'm not mistaken, so was the assisted suicide bill, correct? Oh, oh no, but Christians aren't supposed to get involved in politics. Pastors aren't supposed to talk about that. No, we're supposed to remain separate from that. Oh, you mean so they can go ahead and kill the babies and kill grandma? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, you Christians, you political Christians, you're so horrible. If the body of Christ hadn't gotten involved, that bill would have passed. I don't want to hear anybody tell me don't talk about politics. If you don't like it, hit the road. Take your liberal fanny with you and get out of here. I'm, not, I'm sick and tired of this garbage. I'm sick and tired of these namby-pamby, wishy-washy Christians. Which side are you on? Man alive. Praise God, the body of Christ in New Mexico just saved a bunch of babies. And I'll tell you what, the body of Christ nationwide failed this last November. They put the, the House, the Congress, and the House of Representatives in control of the Democrats, and all they want to do is kill babies. And they want to legalize every horrible, vile sin you can think of. Man, you better repent if you vote for a stinking Democrat. Oh my goodness, he's gone over the edge. He might get arrested. Come and get me. You mean to tell me you're going to vote for somebody who wants to kill babies and have homosexuals get married? And have people change their gender from the way God made them? That's what you're going to vote for? Are you going to vote for idiocy and stupidity? Man, you need to repent. You need to repent. And I'm not saying the other party's perfect. But man, you've got to choose between life and death. That's the bottom stinking line right there. Man, I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of worrying about who's getting offended. We don't have time for that. John said this is the last hour, folks. And if he said the last hour, where do you think we are now? If John was at Minute one of the last hour, we're at minute 59. Do you know that? If there's an army rising up, great. But we need to rise up against all this tyranny, this horrible, vile, filthy, ungodly behavior that's being promoted by these people. This antichrist spirit. That's what we need to rise up against. Instead, the only army I see rising up is the one that's rising up against people like you and me. Those people in the liberal left wing of the church would go right along with the world in condemning me for what I just did. Guarantee you. No doubt. In fact, probably even maybe some of my friends, other pastors, other... They would rise up, they would condemn me and criticize me for what I just did. This is what we all need to do.
Maybe not with the same amount of <coughs> vigor just exhibited here. <laughs> but you see, I'm, you're my family. I'm comfortable with you. I can, <laughs> I can let it all hang out. <laughs> I did. <laughs> if I do much more, something's going to rip, I'll tell you that. Oh, my goodness. I guess we're probably going to need to stop right here for today. Let's stand. Ah, it just gives me more material for the next time. <laughs> Whew. All right, Father, Father, thank you for the wisdom, the insight, the direction, the guidance that you give us in your word. Lord, just we ask that you'd help us to use it. Lord, help us not to, to back down. I know you haven't called us to be mean to anybody. We're to show people the love of Christ. But at the same time, Lord, you turned over the money changers' tables in the temple. You even said to your close friend, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Lord, you've got to be good friends to be able to say that to somebody. But Lord, sometimes it needs to be said. Lord, if, if any one of us, though we identify as believers, if we're acting or talking like the devil, we need to be held accountable for it. Lord, I pray that we could all have that kind of relationship here, that kind of fellowship here, that we won't be offended uh, when we speak the truth to one another. Lord, thank you for making all these things known to us in your word so that we won't be caught off guard. We won't be surprised. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to keep that same last hour mentality that John, Peter, Paul, the other apostles, the first century believers had. Lord, it does affect the way we live. It does affect the way we think. It does affect how we speak. When we are really living day to day believing that you could call us home at any moment, it has an impact on our lives. And Lord, not doing that also has a negative impact on our lives. We get distracted we get caught up with the things of this world we forget about what really matters what's really important we lose our eternal perspective so god we ask you in jesus name to help us stay alert stay watchful stay waiting stay ready and help us to stay enthusiastic about the return of christ lord let that be our obsession lord i think probably many of us in this room have had different obsessions in our lives, and maybe some have obsessions right now, things that we really want or desire or enjoy. Lord, whether it's some sports or recreational activity or some uh, hobby, craft, whatever it might be, Lord, there are many things that can catch us up in an obsessive mentality and an obsessive focus. But Lord, we know in our heart of hearts, the one thing we should be obsessed with is you, and your soon return. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, your word tells us to uh, look up for our redemption, draw us nigh. And Lord, we don't want to miss it. So we pray as we close now that you would um, just uh, draw us to yourself. Lord, those that might need prayer this morning, ministry from the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the prayer team, that they would come whether it's to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, whether it's to recommit their lives, whether it's for wisdom, guidance, direction, healing. Lord, we know there are physical afflictions that we struggle with and deal with, and you are the God who heals. 
And we, we know you, we trust you, we believe you that when we pray, you will hear our prayers and answer our prayers. So I ask that everyone, Father, who needs prayer today would come forward willingly, without hesitation, without reservation, and receive the ministry of your Holy Spirit today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.